It's January 14th, 2021, and you're listening to the Architecture Geeks podcast. I'm Larry. And I'm Matthew. And we're your friendly neighborhood architects being geeky as we want to be. Well, we have officially had winter, quote unquote, winter in Dallas, because what last weekend it actually there was there was a day where it actually snowed. There's actually snow falling out of the sky and landing on the ground, and, and it didn't stick at our house. But I've had pictures from people around that, like my my brother in law and his wife, their house got got plenty of plenty of snow. It was really quite pretty. Our house it just just sort of fell and melted. But I'm like, okay, this is official. We've had winter. There's snow. We're all good. Did you guys get a lot? We got some. It, it started coming down pretty heavily around lunchtime for the twins, and it lasted for about a couple hours. We got about a quarter of an inch. It lasted a couple hours, and then by about three o'clock, it had all melted away. It was gone. <laughs> well, well, did the twins get to go out and play in it? Yeah, they, they did. Riley was more concerned about making sure that the stuffed animal that she brought out in the snow with her didn't get wet. So she was more concerned about that. And both of them were, were a little hesitant, but it was it was one of those things you're just like, okay, guys, it's cold. Let's go back inside. That, that's what they were telling us. And and so it was one of those you're just like, oh guys, come on. This is this is one of your this is one of those firsts that you have to sit through. <laughs> That, that that would definitely be one of those first for for kids that okay it's your first snowfall I don't care how cold it is I don't care if it's freaking you out you're gonna go out and, and enjoy it but but yeah uh, hopefully next time it actually snows which I'm assuming it will again in a couple of years who knows they will be a little older and be able to en- enjoy it a little more I guess um, when you consider the last time it snowed was five years ago I it- I, I'm holding out hope that, that the next time they will get to enjoy it. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. I mean, I think, I think that's, that's definitely one of those experiences to have. So, so I'm glad they got to go out in it and I'm, and I'm glad we got to see it, but on a totally, totally different note, we wanted to welcome everybody to the first of a series of podcasts that we're, that we're doing that's that's really celebrating architecture abroad, and it's something that we're calling our international series. And the idea that that's driving this is really has to do with the pandemic, because since you know, since this all started going on, travel around the world has been really restricted by the virus, and a lot of the countries are enforcing these travel restrictions, not just not just within, but also abroad, where you can forget about going there unless you've you know you're. I know they're starting to, to ease up some with like if you've had a, a negative test this many days in advance, but even at that, most people are really just we've been stuck at home dreaming of this day when we can, you know, when staycations are no longer the the norm when we can actually get on a plane and go somewhere. So for us, for Matthew and I, we thought that this could be kind of fun to use this as an opportunity to really explore other countries and do it through the lens of the podcast itself. So what we're going to do, we're going to focus on aspects of architecture that are done differently around the world and can hopefully provide some perspective on how architecture is approached, not just by different people or different architects, but also within different cultures. And first on our 
international list is Japan, a country that really encompasses uh, an incredible blend of traditional and modern architecture. You have large traditional Buddhist temples, modernist steel and glass skyscrapers, and meticulously preserved World War II ruins all sitting next to each other in a dense tapestry that is really unique to that island. The architecture movement of metabolism, an entire school of thought dedicated to the idea that cities and buildings are ever-changing and organic and should be designed to be replaced, originated in Japan. The most famous example of this ideology being the, the capsule towers in Tokyo. But that's a whole nother rabbit hole that we could really get lost down. And maybe we'll save that for another day. <laughs> but the main feature that we'd like to focus on is really how Japanese architects use windows. But before we get into that, there's a little bit of context that's important to this. Japan is an incredibly dense place to live. Uh, according to the most recent United Nations numbers, it's the 11th most populous country in the world with 126 million people. And 92% of that 126 million live in urban areas, which means the cities are incredibly crowded. For example, Tokyo is the most populous urban area in the world with over 38 million people. And by comparison, the Dallas-Fort Worth area that we live in, which contains multiple cities, only has 7.5 million people. That that seems like a... Um... I think I'll take the seven and a half million <laughs> over the the thirty eight million. That that just seems really really intense. And what but what that means though is is when you're building for places for people that live in a city like like Tokyo. When you're talking about residential, you're talking about trying to trying to create something that's in a really crowded crowded environment. And for people doing houses, that means that these lots that that they're building on are pretty small and you've got neighbors that are often a few feet away on all sides of the site. So when architects are designing houses in this environment, they have to get really clever with balancing the light and the air provided by the windows with the privacy and security that a lot of people desire the residents are going to want. And at a very basic level, that means addressing what are really the three distinct categories window function falls under. You're either you're providing a view, you're providing light and ventilation, or you're providing a secondary means of egress in an event of a fire. Or if you're maybe a little younger, you're providing a, a secondary means of actually, I don't know, being able to sneak out of the house maybe. I never did, but yeah, sure, we can. <laughs> I'm sure some people would use it like that. But the, the most obvious uh, of these is the view outside. I think we'd all like to have an amazing view no matter where we are in our houses, but you need the right combination of luck and location to truly have a good view. I'm currently sitting in my office and that has a, a pretty large window. It's a five foot by six foot window, but the only thing I can see through it is my neighbor's fence, which is seven feet away. And I, I would definitely not consider that a view. In, in this instance, my office window would fall under the second category of a, a window providing light and air. And when there's no good view to be had as architects, we really try to minimize the lack of view through thoughtful design. However, sometimes it can't be avoided. In these instances, windows can still be valuable to a building's inhabitants 
from the viewpoint of providing light and air to an otherwise dark and dreary space. But natural light and good ventilation are also important are also important to a building's design and function, not to mention the user's overall physical and mental health. The right window placement can help with all of these. When we talk about health, I, I can't help but think of people who have seasonal affective disorder, where you know there's less sunlight, there's less sunlight during the, the day, so people get a little more depressed. And I think having that addressing this the that category of, of window as light and ventilation I think I think is something to kind of focus on just to help maybe ease some of that but the third and the third window category that we really wanted to address here are what what are called code mandated windows and these are the windows that are required by code to provide a secondary means of egress in case of a fire Sometimes those windows are put in just because they're mandated by law, although that hasn't stopped some developers from trying <laughs> to cut costs by excluding those windows. And, and we are unfortunately speaking from personal experience here, but that's that's really, really something that by code you really have to do. You have to have that secondary egress. And when we're talking about these different categories, they're they're not mutually exclusive. Because windows can fall into one, two, or all three of the categories all at the same time. So the question is, I guess, how do these categories fit in with the residential work the Japanese architects are doing? Well, they fit in there out of necessity. These window types are how architects in Japan are maintaining privacy on a crowded island while still allowing light, air, and the occasional view into and out of the building. And to understand what we're talking about, we wanted to share a couple of examples of this. One of these is, it's a two-story, almost A-frame, triangle-shaped house in Hamamatsu. Well, I hope I got that right. Japan. <laughs> it's called the Eaves House. And the way this is built, the roof is sloped at such a steep angle that it also functions as one of the main walls of the building. And it comes down from the second story. The roof comes down from the second story, completely covers the first floor, and then stops and hovers about three feet off the ground. And what it's done is it's allowed the architect to create a space underneath the eaves that includes this small garden. Underneath, so you have this, this really long overhang, and then suddenly there's this kind of little, little garden underneath there, but it it allows you, the architect, really to provide a lot of privacy to the residents. And then you have skylights and strategic openings that are cut into the roof that also helps to give the residents a view outside, but but still at the same time maintaining sort of that screen of privacy. And it really is, it's a very unusually shaped building, but it's but it's that great example of how do we how do we combine all those things? How do we do provide egress? How do we provide light and ventilation at the same time? How do we provide privacy? And the architect, uh, the the guy who designed the house, architect that designed the house, did a really, really amazing job just accomplishing all those three and just doing it with the windows. I, I would have to say that my favorite example of this creative use of, of windows has to be the optical glass house in Hiroshima, Japan, uh, by Hiroshi Nakamura. I again, I. I Apologize for butchering that, but <laughs> it's it's a free it's a freestanding house in downtown Hiroshima, sandwiched between a significantly taller office building on one side and some shops, and then another mid-rise structure on the other side. 
so it's a fairly dense little neighborhood and the architects had quite the challenge to provide some kind of privacy in, in such an urban setting and with such tall neighbors nearby. To solve this, he surrounded the entire property with four-story walls, but on the walls that are visible from the streets on, on the, the, I guess, the north and the south sides, um, he used this optical glass block going up two stories to create a, a semi, semi-transparent wall that allows a ton of natural light back into the private courtyard and the house situated behind it. That then allowed the rest of the residents to have floor-to-ceiling windows behind a screen of privacy that you can still kind of see through. And, and the overall effect is, is, is really amazing. And, and it's an incredibly clever but expensive way to get some good light into a, into a space. The amount of glass block alone in this house weighs 13 tons. So the amount of structure <laughs> that was needed to support it must be astonishing check out our website where we have a link to this project but it's it's a really cool it's just a really cool example of 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 the of japanese architects finding ways to integrate large floor-to-ceiling windows but still maintain some degree of privacy in such a crowded place and and you can find both of these links and our descriptions at the architecture geek site um or you can follow the links on the podcast post. Uh, both houses are really unique, especially when you look at the houses in the U.S., where windows sometimes come in a distant third. When, when we're talking about prioritizing a design in a house, the, the, the first two is maximizing square footage and maybe a plan design. And, and, and then you get windows as, as maybe a, a a tertiary consideration, particularly in, in, in mass-produced housing. By comparison, the majority of the examples from Japanese architecture that I've seen, windows take a priority in the design process, something that in a pandemic world is becoming increasingly important. Proper ventilation in buildings is now seen as a life-saving tool thanks to the virus, and not to mention the connection to the outside world is is a sanity saving tool that i know everybody has needed during these lockdowns especially if you're going especially if you're coming from a place like england which has severely restricted all movement due to the new variants of the coronavirus that has come around yeah a lot of james's staff like half of his staff is is located in london and and they are all having that sort of very unique experience so i can imagine you know it's it's they went through this pretty severe lockdown at the start, and here we are again, and they're having to lock down again. So having that window to look out of has to really be be a lifesaver in a lot of ways. But and and there are other factors that that we can talk about too, and we're we're considering windows and and anything from helping to regulate the energy use of a building, which um, I think we've probably talked about at least once or twice on previous podcasts, all the way down to improving how a retailer's business might just because that interaction with people going by on the street. But for today's podcast, what we really wanted to focus on was, was this aspect of Japanese residential design and how it really highlights what's possible when windows really are a driving factor. And once travel restrictions start to ease up, and hopefully you find your way to Japan, 
take note of the residential design that's scattered across the country and, and see if you don't pick up on, on that, on just what we're talking about, how the architecture there really embraces the use of the windows. But for now, since we're also kind of hanging out at home, we are going to say farewell, but we will be back next week with another podcast. And we're going to try to scatter the international podcast out through the next few months. And I guess as we're going through the year, and if you have any suggestions as to what you might want us to talk about international wise, please feel free to reach out to us. As usual, you can catch me Larry at spotteddogarchitecture.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at spotteddogarch. And of course, Matthew, you can find me on Twitter at archgeekmat. You can go visit our website at architecturegeeks.com. And the new Architecture Geeks Gmail is architecturegeeks100 at gmail.com. So feel free to reach out to us there as well. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.